Well, today we're having an Easter egg hunt at the Telestai Church in New Kensington. I'm challenging you to find some solid gold and solid silver Easter gems in this message today. I'm sure you can mine some out of it. This is Hebrews 2020. We see Jesus, and this is increment 20. And it's a Easter message, I guess you could call it. Although I always assume that every message is something about Easter. Father, we thank you today that you have allowed us to live in such a time as this. In the juncture of two ages. The messianic age, which we have your pledge, will last forever. And this passing transient age called this evil age, which is already passing away. And Father, as we stand in this day of adversity, we're also aware that it is a day of salvation and a day that you have intervened to help. And we have grasped a hold of that help today. We do not pray in desperation but we believe and in our believing have peace and the abundance of hope by the Holy Spirit. And we pray that these will increase in us as we receive your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm continuing without missing a beat in a study of Hebrews, an expositional study of Hebrews, which is also a word of encouragement, a word of exhortation throughout. Hebrews 1, 5 through 13 is called a katina. That's C-A-T-E-N-A. And it means a closely linked series of quotations. In this case, quotations from a Greek text of the Hebrew Old Testament. It begins with a quotation of Psalm 2-7, and it culminates with a quotation of Psalm 110 and verse 1. Now, we've seen a katina before, if you've been with me in our study of Romans the epistle. We've seen this device before employed in an epistle, namely in Romans 3, verses 10 to 18 in which reference after reference gives evidence that both Jews and Gentiles, or all humanity, are under the enslaving control of sin. Or we could say, have been under the enslaving tyranny of sin. So they're therefore illustrating Romans 3.9 and the point that Paul made there. The katina in Romans begins with a quotation of Psalm 14, verses 1 to 3. That quotation is also found in Psalm 53, verses 1 to 3. And it culminates with a quotation from Psalm 36, 1. In Romans, Paul is engaged 
in a dialectic of contradictories, as we've called it, kind of an argument, with a prominent representative of a law-based so-called gospel, and Paul is defending his grace-based gospel, which is all about God's Son. We compare Romans 1.3 and Hebrews 1.2. They have that in common. It's God speaking in a son, his son. Paul is defending his grace-based gospel all about God's son. His opponent has a law-based gospel which mentions Jesus but then sidelines him bringing in human activity as the prime message. In times of national or world crisis, often so-called gospel preachers are called to the fore to offer hope to people in despair, where normally we wouldn't hear their voice. But often those preachers have a works-based gospel. They tend to lead the despairing into an even deeper despair. Often those preachers acknowledge that Jesus indeed died for our sins and even the Easter truth that he's raised from the dead. But then their gospel sidelines Jesus and makes salvation all about our actions, our admission of sins, our sorrow for sins, our surrender to God, our repentance, and our living for Jesus. The real gospel is all about God's Son and his all-saving sacrifice, which God recognized and acknowledged by raising him from the dead. The catena is a fairly common device that's deployed in ancient rhetorical argument. A series of quotations or sometimes a series of examples like we find in Hebrews 11 are deployed to build the case of the speaker or writer. Paul's Romans catena in 310 to 18 of Romans, is intended to declare a universal homartiology. Now, that's just a word for a theology of sin, homartiology. He presents a universal homartiology showing emphatically all to be under sin, all of humanity. But he does this in order to accentuate and lay heavy stress on a universal Christo-soteriology, or a study of salvation with Christ at the heart. So that the same all, under the tyranny of sin, is justified by grace through the redemption that was wrought by God in Christ Jesus. Romans three twenty-three to 24. So Paul's powerful catena in Romans 3 is to show that all of the human race is under the power of sin 
which he portrays as a kind of personified tyrant, a world ruler, as it were. Much later, he concludes that God has locked up the whole of the human race, again including all Jews and Gentiles, in disobedience and unbelief, in order that God may have mercy on all. Romans 11.32. In Romans 5.12-21, Paul showed that all the human race in a single inclusive representative, namely Adam, were not only under sin, but concluded to be under condemnation. But that in Jesus Christ, and through his meritorious obedience, as a second and final inclusive representative, all the human race were made righteous and given life. Romans 5.18 to 19 are inestimably important in proclaiming the gospel. God's grace has superabounded for all of humanity where sin had abounded. Now, it's obvious that sin abounds in the whole of the human race, not part of it, all of it in Romans 5.20. But God's grace has superabounded where sin abounded, Romans 5.20. God's grace has superabounded in all of humanity and for all humanity where sin had abounded. Now, if we were to blend, and I love to do this, or conflate or join together, the insight of Romans with the insight of Hebrews, we could say this, that the grace of God by which Jesus tasted death for everyone, Hebrews 2.9, the grace of God by which Jesus tasted death for everyone now reigns through the saving act of God in Christ Jesus. The grace of God by which Jesus tasted death or experienced death for every man, for every human being, for all of humanity, now reigns on the throne through righteousness. But righteousness through which grace reigns is not just a quality that people have or that even God has. Righteousness is what God has done in Christ. It's the saving act of God, the reconciling act of God in Jesus Christ. Psalm twenty-two thirty-one makes it very clear. What he has done, his righteousness, God's righteousness is what he has done, what he has achieved, what he has accomplished in Christ, of course. Grace now reigns through righteousness, Romans 5.21 then, means that grace is reigning through God's saving act in Christ for all of humanity because, again, Psalm 22.31 says God's righteousness is what God has done. God's grace now reigns through what God has done. The Katina, that waterfall of references and verses, 
in Romans 3, 10 to 18, plays a significant role, therefore, in Paul's portrayal of Jesus Christ in his universally saving significance. What about the Hebrews' katina? It's in 1, 5 through 13. It follows right after. See, we're starting to get a little picture of the structure of Hebrews. The first four verses is one complex periodic sentence called an exordium. The verse from 1, 5 through 13, that section is called a katina. It's also called a florilegium. I pronounced it wrong before. I said florigelium. It's actually florilegium, F-L-O-R. I-L-E-G-I-U-M. means a collection of flowers, but figuratively it means, again, a collection of sequences of written texts to prove a point or to make a case. So the Hebrews' katina of 1.5 to 13 also presents a salvo of citations with heavy emphasis on the Psalms. It comes from the Psalms largely like Paul's Katina did. The writer's purpose in Hebrews is to present scriptural evidence for the Son's superiority over all the angels as the agent of God's saving purpose. The writer shows, we call him the PT, the pastor theologian or the shepherd theologian, shows that the son whom God appointed heir of all things in one two and by whom he created the universe is superior to angels whom God made as gusts of wind and flames of fire by comparison. By comparison to the son who is the very radiance of God's glory and the very impress and self-representation of God's substance, the angels are just Gusts of winds or flames of fire by comparison. It's a wonderful comparison and contrast. It is this sun and no angel who made purification for sins, not for our sins only, but if we bring First John into the picture, the sins of the whole world. If we bring John one twenty nine into the picture, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the declaration of John the baptizer. If we bring Hebrews 9, 26 into the picture, Christ appeared once and for all at the end of the ages or the culmination or the juncture really of two ages to put away sin by the offering of himself. So this katina, also known as a Florilegium, also a literary and rhetorical device, means, and it means florilegium, means flower gathering. The Greek text would actually read it as an anthology, or a Greek word would be anthology or collection. It's part of a rhetorical strategy, part of building a case or an argument. It's a collection of excerpts from written texts, as the American Heritage College Dictionary puts it a collection of excerpts from written texts. In this case, scriptural texts, largely selected from the Psalms of the Hebrew scriptures, but also from elsewhere, also from Torah and from the writings. 
The Hebrews Florilegium of first, the first chapter, 1, 5 through 13, that Florilegium, that collection, that catena of verses, follows the initial exordium or introduction in 1, 4, 1, 1 to 4. And that ends with the declaration, that introduction ends with the declaration that the Son had become superior to the angels and had inherited a name which is far more excellent than theirs. Much of the rest of the expositional content of this discourse, which we call Hebrews, answers questions having to do with how and why this superiority was acquired and this name was inherited. And just what it should mean to the readers and the hearers, both in the first and the 21st century. Moreover, it answers the twofold question just who is this son? And what is his full significance? The Florilegium of Hebrews 1 5 to 13 begins with God speaking to his son in 1 5 by a quotation of Psalm 2-7. And the Katina ends with God speaking to his son again in Psalm 110-1, quoted in Hebrews 1-13. So not only does God speak to his son throughout this florilegium, allowing us to hear, but the son is also speaking to the father in other places of Hebrews. And we overhear that also. Such passages as Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8, which in the Septuagint, or Greek translation, is Psalm 39, 5 through 7, where he says, A body you have prepared for me, that I may do your will. In the volume of the book it is written of me, O God, to do your will. The Father calls the Son God in Hebrews 1, 8 to 9. Quoted from Psalm 45, 6 and 7. The Son calls the Father God. Both are divine persons, distinguished from one another, but both of the same divine essence in what we call the Trinity. For the Holy Spirit also is brought prominently into Hebrews. Not only does God speak to his Son throughout the Florigelium then, or the Florilegium, sorry, allowing us to hear or overhear. But the Son speaks to the Father in passages like Hebrews 10, 5 through 7, in which he declares his obedience to the Father. Now, among the marvels of Hebrews, and there are many, there's a kind of dramatic presentation, therefore, a theatrical presentation, we could say, in which we observe and hear a dialogue between the Father and the Son. The drama is about the redemption of the human race. All of this belongs to the brilliant theological exposition within Hebrews. The expositional element, or the part that expounds theological truths, Christological truths, salvation truths, the expositional element supports 
and is the basis for an element we call pastoral exhortation. And that's what's predominant in this homily. It's exhortation. Hebrews 13.22, the writer even says this word of encouragement, describing the whole of Hebrews. So you're going to hear a lot of exhortation as we go through this epistle. Like Romans, Hebrews, far from sidelining God's unique son, it rather laser focuses on the son while we look away from ourselves, looking away from ourselves to him. So that we see Jesus, and in seeing him crowned with glory and honor, we see our own destiny. Despite so great a salvation, as Hebrews 2.3 calls it, and that word great, mega, comes into play quite often in Hebrews. So great a salvation. A great high priest, as we're going to see, the great shepherd of the sheep. And in Hebrews 5.11, the writer gets a little bit put off and says, we have such a great deal to say about this figure named Melchizedek, but are you ready for it? Are you, the readers, ready for this? And that's what's the occasion of that controversial passage in Hebrews 6, 4 through 8. It's not about losing somebody's salvation. It's about maturity and readiness to hear greater truths than we've known before. Now, despite so great salvation wrought by God and through the Son, there is in Hebrews an intrinsic urgency. There's a built-in sense of urgency that the readers hear the voice of the Holy Spirit, as Hebrews 3.7 and 4.7 says, and that they do not harden their hearts. Or I like to think of it as giving God the stiff arm, stay back from me. This urgency is due to the nature of today, as it's called. Today, if you hear his voice. The today in which we live is really the clashing of two days. The clashing of two days. The end of one, the beginning or the dawn of another. The day of salvation is one of those days, which is endless in 2 Corinthians 6, 2, but it's already begun. And the day of adversity, Proverbs 24, 10 talks about it, but it's also called the evil day in Ephesians 6, 13. So we are in the clash between the everlasting age of Messiah and the transient evil age, which is already passing away like darkness in the emerging light. In 1 John 2.8, the darkness is already passing away. The true light is now shining. That's kind of like the clashing of two days, the end of one, the beginning of another. We're right there in that today. So today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts as they did in the day when they provoked the Lord in the wilderness. And the results of that were not very pleasant. 
And so, though this so great salvation is the work of God in Christ, there is something of great value still to be gained or lost by the addressees of this sermon and by us in this clash of the ages. The Son suffered to be perfected in solidarity with humanity. Human beings must think and act and persevere in faith if they are to be perfected in solidarity with the Son, becoming his companions, as Hebrews 3.14 says. The Son became the source of an age-abiding salvation. That's a salvation that is to be and can be experienced now in the clash of these two ages or these two days and will be experienced throughout the everlasting age after the evil age is gone and passed away. The Son, Christ, became the source of an age-abiding salvation which is a salvation that is effective and experienced in this evil age in those who obey him, Hebrews 5.9. And so we have this verse that I think I've never forgotten. It's always been somewhere roiling around in my soul. 2 Timothy 2.12a. If we endure, we will also reign with him, rule together with him as kings. Now, this is increment 20 of Hebrews 2020. We see Jesus. It happens to be dated on Easter Sunday of 2020. Now, Should I make this an Easter sermon? Could an Easter sermon even be taken from Hebrews? Where there's only one explicit reference of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. One. But that single reference is in the final benediction in Hebrews. Hebrews 13, 20 to 21, where it says the God of peace is praised. He's praised there. And a prayer wish is expressed that he would, quote, perfect you in every beneficent and benevolent action for the doing of his will, effecting in you that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory to the age of the ages, or the ages of the ages. Amen. Now this God of peace, as he's called, God of peace, is spoken of as he who, quote, brought up from the dead, or led up from the dead, the great shepherd of the sheep. That's Jesus called the great shepherd of the sheep. 
the one who wrought so great a salvation, the one who is the source of that everlasting salvation, the one who is our great high priest, is the one who is also the great shepherd of the sheep. Jesus our Lord, it says. And that God, the God of peace, raised him up with a view to the blood of the everlasting covenant. The everlasting covenant is the new covenant. Unlike the covenant that came forth at Sinai, which was temporary and transient, like this age, the new covenant is forever. And that's why when Jesus invoked the Eucharist, he said, this represents my blood, my blood of the covenant, my blood of the covenant, which is shed for many. And we know in Matthew 26, 28, as well as in Matthew 20, 28, that all means, or that many means all, and that all means many. Many means all. 1 Timothy 2, 6. Now, why only this one explicit reference to the resurrection of Jesus our Lord in Hebrews? Why just this one? Romans breaks in with an explicit reference to the resurrection of Jesus, and it's a prominent theme that reaches a climax in Romans 8.34, which speaks of Christ Jesus as the one who died but even more has been raised and who moreover is at the right hand of God and intercedes for us. Hebrews begins right there, right where Romans eight thirty four ends. It begins with the son of God at the right hand of God and elaborates on his intercession for us as our GHP great high priest. So great salvation comes to an eschatological climax, a final culmination, because of our great high priest. Whoever lives to make intercession for us, to save us to the glorious maximum, to the uttermost, in Hebrews 7.25. So does Hebrews downplay the resurrection? Does it downplay or diminish the significance of Jesus' resurrection with all of its talk of his exaltation and his intercession? On the contrary, the reference to the resurrection in the benediction, in this place of prominence at the end, toward the end of the discourse, reveals that the writer holds the resurrection of Jesus as a deeply cherished and indispensable reality. All of his exposition of the son's exaltation presupposes and in fact demands attention to the resurrection. Moreover, the fact that the son is also called the firstborn, right in Hebrews 1.6, implies his resurrection because this implies the writer's familiarity with the concept of Jesus being the firstborn from among the dead, the firstborn of the dead, 
which we also find in Romans and Revelation rather, Revelation one five, Romans eight twenty nine calls him the firstborn also, as well as Hebrews twelve, twenty two to twenty four, in which the church, the body of Christ, is called the church of the firstborn. And that implies that the church too has been raised with him after dying with him. So we could compare Revelation 1.5 and Hebrews 12.22 to 24. In both of these passages, Jesus' blood is prominent. It is the blood of the everlasting covenant, not of the transient covenant made at Mount Sinai. And this, by, uh, by an insight granted to him, Brian Messick, our one pastor in our congregation, of course, you know Brian, showed this to be, in effect, a covenant made with the first Adam. That Sinai, Sinai covenant at Mount Sinai, Sinai was, in effect, made to the first Adam. And that's why it is so transient, because the first Adam is not the last Adam. Now, the blood of the everlasting covenant is Jesus' blood of the covenant, which was shed once again for many. This is my blood of the covenant. The everlasting covenant, the new covenant, which is shed for many, on behalf of many. Matthew 26 28 can be compared with Hebrews 13 20 here and with respect to which the father brought him up from the dead in other words the father brought the son up from the dead led him up it's as if the father and this is a picture we have of resurrection that's rarely portrayed it's as if the father took the son his dead son by the hand and led him up out of the realm of the dead and showed him the path of life and He did so because the son had accomplished a mission through the shedding of his blood, which brought forth the fulfillment of the new and everlasting covenant. That's not a law-based gospel. That's a grace-based gospel where God would write upon the hearts of his people, his laws, and put his spirit within those people and cause them to walk in his ordinances and in his mandates, which amount to love God and love one another. Ezekiel 36, 26, and 27, Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34, treated in Hebrews chapter 8, as we'll see down the line. And so then, this is turning out to be an Easter sermon. The father brought him up from the dead, led him up from the dead. The son to whom the father said, you are my son, today I have begotten you, is none other than our Lord Jesus, whom the God of peace, who will bring all his enemies under his feet, brought up, led his son up from the dead. Here we have someone leading a shepherd. 
It's a shepherd's job to lead, but here we have someone leading the great shepherd of the sheep. The God of peace leads his son up from the dead, from among the dead, from the realm of the dead. So it is ultimately Jesus in Psalm 16. It is ultimately Jesus speaking to the Father in Psalm 16:11 saying you reveal to me the path of life in your presence there is fullness of joy in your right hand at your right hand that's where Jesus is now seated there is eternal delight the father has eternal delight in his son The son has eternal delight in his father and in his bride. So the son of man in Revelation 1, also known as the great shepherd of the sheep in Hebrews 13, 20, said to John on the Isle of Patmos, quote, I was dead. But look at me now. I am alive to the age of the ages, that is, to the everlasting age and throughout it. But that's with a life that all are going to have and all will be made alive in Christ to the age of the ages. Now, there's, we're getting close to what the real gospel is. Revelation one eighteen, The son to whom the father said, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Today I have begotten you. And sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footrest for your feet is our Lord Jesus. Today he has begotten him. At the juncture of the ages, he has begotten the son. And it's our Lord Jesus whom God revealed the path of life to and brought up from the dead. Now, the son to whom the father said, your throne, God, is forever and ever, which means throughout this juncture of the ages and throughout the coming endless age, which came into being with your resurrection, that's none other than our Lord Jesus whom the father led up from the dead, brought up from the dead. Now, this is so reminiscent of Jesus' action in Mark 5, 41. He goes to a child who has died, and he says, she's not dead, she's sleeping. This is how Jesus views death, incidentally, as sleep. And one time he had to be very frank with his disciples about Lazarus. He said, Lazarus is sleeping. And they say, what do you mean he's sleeping? What do you mean by that? That's, is that a metaphor? And Jesus finally said, he's dead. And so he he raises Lazarus from the dead. That's not the final resurrection in which Lazarus comes into this incorruptible human body and this immortal human body like Jesus alone has now. But it's to illustrate the point. Jesus comes to this little girl who has died, but he says is only sleeping. And he extends his hand to her. He takes this child by the hand. 
And he said to her in the Aramaic, Talithi, Talitha, Kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. Now we may picture the father, likewise, taking his dead child's hand, his child Jesus by the hand, and saying, little child or little lamb, arise. We can picture then the father leading him up from the realm of the dead, right through that stone disc that was rolled over the tomb to seal it. The father in the tomb, taking the hand of his dead son and saying, little child, arise. That's the resurrection of the dead. That's the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the resurrection of the great shepherd of the sheep. And the father says, look, son, there's the path of life. He shows him the path to life. Then he elevates him to his own right side in the highest levels of heaven. This is the picture of the resurrection, which we normally do not see. But today we see Jesus in this way. The son by whom God made the ages, the son by whom God created the universe, is our Lord Jesus, whom God raised from the dead. After he had made purification for sins, the sins of the whole world, once and for all and forever, for all of humanity over all of humanity's times on this earth. He had put away sin, removed it right out of the cosmos by the offering of himself, an offering that is, again, once and for all, and for all time and all people throughout all the ages. The one through whom God made the ages is the one who is the author of a salvation that both spans and transcends the ages. But those who obey him, those who obey him by believing, get to experience that salvation now in a transcendence of themselves. This salvation that transcends time and spans it is a salvation that is only experienced in the measure that we transcend ourselves through recognizing that we have been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, we live, and yet not us, but Christ lives in us. That's not frustrating the grace of God, which all works-based gospels do. The worst thing you can do is take a people in despair and then give them a works-based gospel that down the road will only heighten their despair and deepen their despair. It's not enough to mention Jesus died for sins and rose from the dead and then sideline him in the action of salvation or make him only the savior of a few elect. That's not the gospel. Now, 
I guess it's not fitting to holler like that on Easter Sunday. Those who obey him, that's Hebrews 5.9, get to experience that salvation now in a transcendence of themselves or in a forgetfulness of themselves, as our brother Peter Hyatt recently proclaimed. We must forget ourselves, as he taught on Matthew 5.13 to 16. This same Lord Jesus is a priest throughout the age after the order of Melchizedek. That's lifted from Psalm 110.4. In connection with his resurrection, the PT, the shepherd teacher, calls Jesus the great shepherd of the sheep. It takes one to know one. It takes a shepherd to really know a shepherd in that sense. Like Peter, who speaks of the leaders of the flock of God, who will receive a crown of glory by the chief shepherd when he appears, 1 Peter 5, 4, the writer of Hebrews, like Peter, recognizes that these leaders and all pastors must give an account to him in Hebrews 13, 17. So instead of respecting, in a sense of adulation, pastors who proclaim the word, congregations should recognize that the pastor is one to whom he has to give account to the great shepherd of the sheep. He's under a great accountability. That's why any pastor worth his salt will not receive any adulation from people and not make himself something of a personality leader of a personality cult. He has a great accountability, and he labors under the pressure of this accountability all his life. Now, every pastor, every shepherd teacher should be aware that when the chief shepherd appears, there's going to be a corona of glory for those who were faithful in the communication of that word. A corona that's incorruptible, as Paul called it in 1 Corinthians 9, 24 to 27. And congregations who listened to that pastor and profited from the word he brought, they will share, I think, in the glory and in the splendor of that corona. A corona victory, not a coronavirus. Now, as we wind down to the final gears of today's message, There's still some solid gold and solid silver eggs to be found in this little nest of a sermon. Yahweh Yeshua, the Lord Jesus, is our shepherd. The good shepherd who laid his life down for the flock. It is he who has made us and not we ourselves, says Psalm 100 in verse 3. In fact, Psalm 100 in its totality is a wonderful psalm to read together as a family or in your own homes as we're still confined there most of the time now. Psalm 100. This benediction, therefore, in Hebrews 13, 20 to 21, is an Easter sermon in itself. And it summons us to enter into God's gates with thanksgiving, kind of like echoing 1228 of Hebrews. 
and into his courts with praise. My prayer now is that we will emerge from this present crisis into a newness of life that we haven't known before and into a brightness of light and insight that we have not known before because in his light we see light. And through adversity we learn so much and are brought to the peaceable fruit of righteousness. My prayer is that we will emerge from this crisis as it is, national and international, out into the light of a service of God that we have not known before, a meaningful service as priests to the benefit of all humankind and that we will serve him acceptably because we have will have received such grace in Hebrews 12:28 compared with Romans 7:6 and Hebrews 9:14 how much more shall the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself to God purify your conscience to serve the living God the living God. And that means to serve him as a kingdom of priests. Now, the benediction is an Easter sermon. It summons us to enter into God's gates with thanksgiving, into his courts with praise and hymns and songs, and to receive even more grace that we may serve God with gratitude and as such serve him acceptably. We see Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, the sheep of his pasture. We are the sheep of his pasture. The sheep of his pasture are his people whom he made. He made us. We didn't make ourselves. We are not self-made people of God. He has made us. He who brought about so great salvation is our great high priest. Hebrews 4.14. Hebrews 10.21, GHP. The PT, pastor teacher or shepherd teacher or pastor theologian, speaking evidently for himself and others who shepherd by teaching, says of this high priest after the order of Melchizedek, we have a great deal to say about him. We have a great deal to say, a great deal to say in Hebrews 5.11 especially since we ought to reflect on just how great this man Melchizedek was, Hebrews 7, 4, and that there is a great reward, a great reward, Hebrews 10, 35, for us if we don't throw away our confidence and if we persevere, Hebrews 10, 35 and 36. So that after accomplishing the will of God by receiving the strength of his grace, Hebrews 12, 28, we may receive what was promised. That great reward, that kind of reigning in life status. This singular explicit reference to the resurrection of Jesus in Hebrews 13, 20 is therefore quite significant indeed. In fact, this unmistakable declaration shines its light over all the epistle. For without the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, the dead would not be raised. All the rest of humanity would not be raised. Without the resurrection of our Lord Jesus from the dead, the Son would not have been seated in the highest 
height of the heavens at the right side of the eternal majesty. He would not be seen by us crowned with glory and honor. The resurrection from the dead of our Lord Jesus is just as important to the PT who preached and taught this sermon called Hebrews as it is to all the early Christians and hopefully all the modern day Christians for whom it had prime importance. Along with the death of Jesus for sins. This is of prime importance in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 to 4. We won't debate that. Finally, it is the God of peace. Please notice it. The God of peace. Who led up from the realm of the dead, the great shepherd of the sheep. The God of peace is the God who was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, the God of peace, God in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their sins to them. The God of peace is the God who made peace by the blood of his son's cross, the blood of the cross of the son of his love. And having made peace by the blood of the cross, He will reconcile all things and all beings in the heavens and the earth to himself and to one another. This is not the only time in the New Testament where God who raised Jesus from the dead is called the God of peace. Paul always begins his letters with grace and peace from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. That peace comes from the God of peace. The peace of God comes from the God of peace. In Romans 15.33, for example, Paul wrote, The God of peace be with you all. In Romans 16.20, in a very odd turn of words, Paul declared, The God of peace will soon break in pieces the adversary under your feet. A God of peace Breaks in pieces the adversary under your feet. In 2 Corinthians 13.11, as a kind of benediction of that epistle, the same apostle wrote, Finally, siblings, rejoice. Be restored or be perfected. Be incentivized. Be of the same intention. Be at peace. And the God of love and peace will be noticeably with you. He's with us. God is with us, but here he's calling it noticeably with us, manifestly with us. Philippians 4, 9, Paul was confident enough to say, do what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, and the God of peace will be with you. That means noticeably with you, observably with you, as we could say, manifestly with you. And still again, in 1 Thessalonians 5.23, what does it say? Another benediction. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your spirit, soul, and body be kept sound and blameless for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
The God of peace is the father of our Lord Jesus, who is our peace. Jesus is our peace in Ephesians 2, 14. Because God is a God of peace, he is the source of peace. Because God is a God of peace who has made peace by the blood of the cross of his son. Then this God who crowned Jesus with glory and honor will also give glory and honor to all of the human race, including the nations and the kings, remember increment 19, who conspired against him. How else can it happen that the glory and honor of the nations and the kings be brought with them through the open gates of the new Jerusalem? Revelation 21, 24. So the word that this writer deploys for the God of peace, anago, anago, leading up, bringing up, the Lord Jesus from the dead, is the word that was used in Psalm 78.52, the Septuagint 77.52, when the psalmist recalls that having removed his people out of bitter slavery in Egypt, God then led, same Greek word, anago, anago, A-N-A-G-O, led them as a flock in the wilderness through the desert. So here in Hebrews 13, 20, there is a remarkable reference to the Lamb of God being led up from the dead in order to lead and guide the great flock as their great shepherd of the sheep. The Lamb rises. The Lamb takes away the sin of the world, becomes the shepherd to guide his flock through the wilderness or the no man's land of this juncture of two eons, two ages. And we are the beneficiaries of so great salvation of which he is the source. The reality of the lamb as shepherd, the lamb as two weird realities. Someone leads the shepherd and it's the father, the God of peace. Another weird thing is that a lamb becomes a shepherd. The lamb who takes away the sin of the world is the shepherd of the sheep, the great shepherd of the sheep raised from the dead to guide and lead his people through the wilderness of this world, the wilderness of this juncture of two ages in which we must listen to the Holy Spirit. Listen. And today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart like the wilderness wanderers did in the days of Moses. So in closing, the reality of the lamb as a shepherd is also found in Revelation 7, 16 and 17. Listen to these words. They will no longer be hungry, nor will they ever thirst. No longer will the sun fall upon them or any heat at all, because the lamb in the center of the throne will shepherd them. And he guides them to springs of water and wipes away every tear from their eyes. The lamb at the center of the throne next to the majesty on high is the real son, S-U-N, of righteousness. Who will arise with healing in his wings.
his rays. That means the life-giving glory in his rays. He will lead us up from this present crisis also. And he will lead us to new green pastures to a renewed newness of life and livingness and to, I believe, greater and greater light and insight. For in his light, we see light. And Father, as we close today, I thank you for the assembly of believers who will hear this message and that you will grant them grace to receive it in the innermost parts of their being. And Father, we pray at this time of our nation's crisis and worldwide crisis that you continue to be with, to strengthen those on the front line of this crisis, that you'll be with our leaders, with our president and vice president and two task force forces that are being raised up to bring us politically out of this and even economically out of this. None of this is going to work, Father. None of it will work without your grace, without your mercy, without you, the God of peace, bringing us up, bringing us out of this crisis into a new promised land, into a new land of opportunity, not just economic opportunity, Father, but for the opportunity of the gospel of the glory of of your son, Jesus Christ, who is the image of God. May that gospel shine into many more hearts. May that gospel be heard in many more places. May it be received in many more churches. May many more shepherd teachers who are accountable to the great shepherd of the sheep receive a message of the universally saving significance of our Lord Jesus Christ and of the universally redemptive and reconciling and redeeming and rectifying and restoring impact of his death and burial, resurrection, and exaltation. May that message come forth with power in places where it's never come before. May pastors not only see it, but have the courage to proclaim it, regardless of the cost to them or to their congregations or to the affiliations with which they are affiliated. In other words, may they proclaim it because it's God's word and may it be heard by more and more people. Father, we ask these and so many other things that we can't even articulate. But again, we don't pray in despair. We believe and experience peace and joy in believing. And we've gone past the desperate pleas of prayer into the peace of believing and the joy of believing. And we now want to experience with many others, the hope overflowing by the Holy spirit in us. And we do this. We commend ourselves to you. Father. Once again, we gladly present our bodies to you as a living sacrifice. We gladly present and commit our souls to you, a faithful creator. We gladly entrust our spirit to you. We gladly give you our heart, and we do so in Jesus' name, amen.